0: Be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you. Good to gather with you here. And um, for those that I can't see, I'm thankful that you're, um, at least I am somewhat aware of your presence, that you are uh, watching with us and uh, worshiping with us um, as I have shared. I I mentioned it last Sunday. Uh, We are beginning a new teaching series uh, this Sunday, this week, in the Sermon on the Mount, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. And um, I'm really um, thankful and excited for the opportunity that we have uh, to do that, to gather together, and to open up uh, this um, powerful sermon. Uh, Some have called it the most powerful sermon that was ever preached. Of course, it was preached by Jesus himself, so that would be um, appropriate to define it, um, in that way. And uh, but we, as we begin this and, and um, Kent read for us this idea, this calling this um, thought that if someone as someone uh, finds and, and, and uh, receives and understands the kingdom of God, Jesus is de- trying to describe to his disciples what the kingdom of God is and what it means and why it's so valuable um, and so from Matthew 13, a little bit after this sermon Jesus is describing the kingdom in this way of just the, the value that it possesses and how important Important And how vital it is and what, how we should think of the kingdom in relationship to our own lives and to the way we see the world. But if we back up from Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus began this teaching, he, he, he ultimately began his ministry recorded for us in Matthew in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. Jesus has gone about he's gathered some disciples together um, he is beginning his ministry Matthew uh, accelerates kind of through the early phases of his life in chapters one through three and then four begins to talk about uh, obviously he is tempted by Satan and then right after that temptation we read this line from Jesus his first words and so in reality some would say this is truly his first sermon not the Sermon on the Mount but this short text from Matthew 4:17 From that time Jesus began to pray Preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you might remember, we studied the book of Mark, and uh, for those of you that are new with us here at City Church, our practice is we just work our way through texts. Um, primarily, we do that very often, at least, books of the Bible. Um, in this season, we are taking a shorter piece of one book, Matthew 5 through 7. and going to spend some time working our way through this text, but we did a study in the book of Mark, and we began that. Mark 1 Jesus says this thing. Mark records his same uh, phrase. It says, repent for the kingdom of God. God is at hand. Matthew uses heaven instead of God, and those words, as we refer to the kingdom, um, they're recorded differently. One of the things about our Bibles, and you may know this, but it's good to just be reminded of this, is that uh, they were written by real people. And as real people, as Matthew recorded this book, recorded what he was uh, telling us about Jesus' life, he did not become in a trance and just lose all of his personality or faculties or anything about himself um, as he began to write. But no, he wrote with his, um, the the giftedness and the way that God had created him. And one of the realities for Matthew was, was to speak the name of God as a Jew was something that was very cautiously stepped into. Uh, Jewish people would not say God's name to use, even to express it uh, verbally. Um, That is why um, it's just so rarely recorded as written down and so matthew being a good jew he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand mark records it as the kingdom of god is at hand maybe he he didn't care quite as much about that but no they are the same thing that's the same idea and so why you might ask why are we teaching a sermon or going through a series now on the sermon on the mount what's the the purpose well, first of all, through prayer and conversation and study um, of this text, the, I, I just believe the Holy Spirit has led us here. And as I've prepared through this and, and, and began to study this text, um, I think that one of the things that has been most prevalent in my mind as why the Lord has led us to this text, to preach through this sermon and really focus uh, such a, 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 um, uh, an amount of time on this, is because it deals with our greatest challenge. The greatest challenge that we face as Christians today. And you're asking, well, what is that challenge? The challenge is, is that we as Christians have bought into the teaching of our culture that self is the most important. That ourselves, our lives, I, me, ...is the most valuable, is the most critical thing in our lives. We've bought into the lie that what is best for me is what is best. What I want is what I should be most concerned with. We've, been, we've become consumed and we've consumed ourselves. So much so that we can't really see the world through any other lens other than self... We see the world and we look at the world and everything that we see is tainted or is influenced in some way through this idea of self. And it isn't that we approach the world so much in a selfish mindset. I don't think and I don't believe in for myself or for many of you that we wake up and think, what can I do to just express my selfishness? How can I describe that? I know teenagers might often do that. But generally speaking, we don't do that as a rule. We don't wake up and just think, oh, this is how I can do something to serve myself. But it's that we are so immersed in a world that lives and preaches that mindset that we almost do it unintentionally. And of course we do have our flesh, our sinfulness that, that just is eager to join along with the rest of the world. And so we don't look for a, at a world, we don't realize or think about how we are to live. A live a life that requires discipline and wisdom and clarity. No, we just are immersed in self I like to think of it in this way. We're like a fish living in an aquarium of self-idolatry. And when, if you've ever looked inside an aquarium, we look into the aquariums and we know that we, everything that we see is sort of influenced by the water. It's distorted. There's a lens. The water becomes a lens. And so our lives are distorted as we are just living in an aquarium of self-idolatry, immersed. And so we all begin, of course, with the effects of the fall in our lives from a very young age. We learn to say, what's some of our children's first words? No, I don't want to, mine, you can't make me, once we are able to put full sentences together. And from there, as we grow, we become even more immersed in that. We begin with those things just in our minds and the way that we express ourselves. And then we become even more immersed in a world that tells us to follow your heart. To just do it. You're worth it. If it is to be, it is up to me. Be all that you can be. Live your best life now. Things that just resonate in our culture. Or even let go and let God. Now that last one, and so so often many of these are very subtle things. They're subtle, they just very easily, slowly creep into our lives. But this is how subtle our enemy can be. How subtly he begins to make us think more of ourselves and less of God. Again, just think of that last statement let go and let God. I let go and I let God. Who is God in that sentence? Who is the ruling authority in that statement? Who is ultimately in control? Who has the power? It's not the God of the universe. It's me. I will let go, and I will decide that in this moment, in this instance, in this situation, in this dilemma, in this problem of life, I will allow God to have influence. Taylor Swift, I think, said it. Jesus, take the wheel. At this moment, I might have gotten that wrong. I'm seeing some questioning eyes. Sorry, Taylor Swift. I love you. Carrie Underwood. Thank you. Jesus, take the wheel. I got the wrong blonde. Tony had a couple girlfriends. I wasn't sure which one it was. Jesus, take the wheel. I will allow God, I will release my hands in this moment from driving the ship, from directing my own path, from deciding where I am headed. And right now, because I am in a dilemma, because I'm frustrated, because I'm in pain, because I'm suffering, because there's deep hurt, challenges, whatever life might have brought us in, we are surrounded by all of those things right now, I think, in our current moment. In this moment, I would really love it if Jesus would take control. But that is not the Jesus that is the Jesus of the Bible, and that is not a Jesus worth worshiping, worth living our lives for, that only has control when we allow him, that only takes control and directs our lives when we allow him. No, Jesus demands, and Jesus is worthy of, and our lives are glorified, best used in in service when we understand that Jesus is always in control. He is Lord of all or not Lord at all. That is who Jesus is. And so as Jesus begins to preach this message, he runs straight into the challenge of our day. This idea that I am in control. So our challenge is clear. And if you're with uh, with us during our, our study of the book of Amos from the last few months... We heard God's rebuke against self-idolatrous worship. The Israelites of uh, Amos' day that he went to approach, they were very religious, very active, uh, very giving, serving, doing all of the things that looked very religious, but their hearts were not the Lord's. They were doing it to prop themselves up. It was, again, a worship of self-idolatry. And so we saw that the church had the nicest things. The church attendance was great. The giving was good. And all these things made them feel right before God. Their actions looked holy, but their hearts, again, were not his. And so judgment came. So, with this mess, with this challenge, with the reality that we just live in a world of self-idolatry. We're swimming in it. We're just consumed by it. How are we to deal with it? What is the solution? I hope I've given you some clarity around an understanding of the problem. But I wouldn't be serving you well if I just told you all of the problems of the world and didn't leave you with or begin to point you to how we deal with it. And so this is where we come to our Bibles. And our Bibles inform us. And we go to our Bibles and we find the answer. How do we deal with this challenge? We turn to Matthew 5. We back up a few verses. And we hear Jesus say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But before I focus there, I want to just spend one more moment of preface in thinking about this idea of self and this idea of the Bible. Sometimes, when we focus so much on ourselves, we often come up with an idea, a thought, a belief something that is about our lives and the idea may be something that is shared with us a friend might speak this to us and then it sort of takes hold and it seems to resonate it it seems to be clear something as simple as some of those phrases that i just quoted earlier just a few moments ago those things creep into our minds and so we take that idea and when we have that idea in our minds whatever it might be we go to the bible and we say let me find what the bible has to say about this but usually what we're doing is we're looking for the Bible to support whatever preconceived idea that we have brought to it. We think that this is the way we should do something. We think that God would approve or disapprove or say this or that. And so we think whatever that idea comes into our minds. And when we go to scripture and we scan the pages, Google's made this very simple for us now. We just type in question Put Bible at the end of it, and a verse will pop up that will affirm whatever it is that you desire to do. Anything that you intend to believe or to say or to do, you can affirm with at least one half of a text of, the, of Scripture in the Bible. Because you don't get the entire context. You're not reading the whole thing. And that's not the way that we approach our Bibles. We've said this in this church very, very often. I have encouraged you that if you ever hear anything from me that comes from my mouth, test it against the words of scripture, and if the words of scripture don't affirm what I have said, then Jesus is right, his word is true, and I'm an idiot. We all know that in general. If you've met me, you've spent enough time. I'm not the brightest guy there is. But the Bible is our sole authority. And so we must always start in the text and ask ourselves, what does the text say? And we can't jump too quickly, as we are tempted, because of this self-idolatry, to think, what does it say to me? What does it mean for me? When we approach our Bible, we should never ask this question. I would just encourage you, just as a litmus test, when you're in a small group study, when you're doing some Bible study, even at home, don't ask yourself the question and don't ask others, what does this mean to you? The Bible cannot mean one thing to you and mean something different to me in the same place. The Bible is true. It is the authority and it says what it says. And so when we think of as we begin to deal with this challenge, we have to take that into to mind because again, we're immersed in this view that we can make the Bible say whatever we want to say. So we study, we meditate on the text, knowing that it is the truth, that it is the authority of God. And we do that so that we might know God himself. And as we begin to understand what God is saying first to the original hearers, then we ask ourselves why God might say that. And then finally we ask what that teaches us about God. And from there... We can begin to make the leap as we understand God more fully, who he is, his nature, what he intends to say to those hearers and why he said it, what it says about himself. We can apply that to our own lives. And so as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, we can be tempted to see this as a New Testament version of the law. The Old Testament gave us the Ten Commandments. These are the rules of life, the way that we're supposed to live our lives. And the New Testament gives us the Sermon on the Mount. And as we read this, we are going to receive, we're going to hear instruction. We're going to hear a call to action. We're going to hear things that we should do in the way way that we should live our lives. But as we're going to hear... Jesus' words, he did not come to abolish the law and just replace it with this New Testament law of the Sermon on the Mount. No, as he will say in this very sermon, he came to fulfill the law, and he did it perfectly. He did with the law what we never could do. And so if you believe that you find your way to God by following his law, or as we study this text, if we are tempted to start to believe that we find our way to God... By following, just simply doing all of these things, even there we can miss the heart of Christ. Yes, these are wise instructions. These are, this is a calling of how we should live our lives. But the way that we should live our lives first begins is living a life in light of the fact that we have been welcomed into a new kingdom. We live in a completely different world. If you're a Christian today, you've been welcomed in and you live in a completely different world. It's as if we've been scooped up by Christ. That idea of if you've ever, I I remember as a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to be able to go to the pet store. I love going to the pet store or more likely in my day and age and in my life, go to the pet aisle in Walmart. And the pet aisle in Walmart was great because it doesn't exist anymore, I don't think, at least in many. But the pet aisle in Walmart had just a wall of aquariums and you could see every different kind of goldfish there was. They didn't really venture out too far from the goldfish. It was a pretty simple aisle. But as a young boy, I really like that. And I, every, every now and again, I'd be able to buy a goldfish. It would die. A couple years later, I'd get to go buy a new one. But I remember the, 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 the when I'd ask to see a goldfish or to take one up, they'd take this net and they would scoop the fish up and they'd put him in a little bag and put him in a new bag and send, send me home with this new fish. And it's as if in this moment, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, or as we come to Christ, excuse me, as we come to Christ, he scoops us up out of this water of self-idolatry and out of the way that we see the world, and he places us in this new kingdom, in this new life, in this new kingdom, this new aquarium that changes everything. It should change everything that we see. Our challenge, though, is that when we're placed in this new aquarium, for many of us, Everything about the new aquarium looks the same as the old aquarium. The little shell, the little fake tree, the strange device that makes all the bubbles. It's all in the same place. And we are tempted again to just begin to think, well, I guess Jesus really didn't do much in my life. I don't really see much different in my life. If we're not careful, we can be tempted to assume that we're in the same place and we can live in the same way. But when we take our eyes off of just the short, kind of close-in surroundings, and we begin to look through and see the world, we see that we have a whole different perspective. The water is different. And so, as somebody might look in on us, or as we might look out onto the world, we see differently. So... You've been wondering, is he ever going to get to Matthew 4 17 with all of that preface as we begin this new series? Let's focus our attention on those words of Christ that begin began his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As Mark recorded it, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So some context to this phrase, as I said, we don't first begin just trying to say, what does this mean to us? What does it mean for us to repent and believe the kingdom is at hand? Let's understand what God was saying to the people who would first, why did Matthew record this in this way? Why did he call the people to repent? Why did Jesus ultimately say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? So the Jews of this day were looking forward. They had been 400 years of silence in a sense. God had closed the Old Testament. Malachi ends our Old Testament and from that time until the New Testament begins, at least in terms of history until what the New Testament records for us, there's a period of about 400 years. And through this 400 years, generation after generation, the Jews, the Israelites had been telling their children, their children's children, their grandchildren, that one day a Messiah will come. A king will come. A ruler will come and he will free us from this world he will free us from our bondage and from our oppression he will set us back in this land that God promised to our forefather Abraham and so they were looking forward to the Messiah always with an eye towards the Messiah thinking and hoping and waiting for the Messiah to come and the Messiah though that they were looking for was this king they were looking for a ruler all the way back when the Jews, you remember this from 1 Kings, they're asking for a king. Te- they tell God, look at all of the other nations that are constantly coming and warring against us and periodically defeating us or oppressing us and challenging us. The reason that they're so strong and the reason that they're able to do the things that they do is because they have a king. So God, give us a king. And God says, well, I'm your king. But they say, no, I want we want to, we want an earthly king. Well, all of the kings of that day failed Were mostly there were a few good ones mixed in every now and again. I think out of 12 kings that recorded maybe two or three are recorded as good kings. But the kings failed. And so the Jews are waiting for a king, waiting for a Messiah who would come in and destroy all of the enemies of God. And so in this present day, when Jesus steps onto earth, comes in the flesh to live with us, they are being ruled by Roman authorities. And the Romans are oppressing them as, again, God's people have been oppressed for most of their history. And so they're waiting for this Messiah. They're waiting for this king to arrive. And so Jesus, God, the God-man, shows up. And he announces to them that the kingdom is here. But as they looked around, they're thinking to themselves, I don't understand what you're talking about because I still see a Roman soldier oppressing me, treating me as a slave. What does this mean? And so Jesus is clearly announcing a kingdom that does not look like the kingdoms of this world, a different kingdom. And so we ask ourselves, when Jesus says to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what is this kingdom? What is he talking about? The first thing that we can know about the kingdom is that it is the universal kingdom. Again, if God is God, then he rules over all things. He is sovereign over all things. And so there is no earthly kingdom that is not ultimately ruled by God himself. The, the king that is a placed in power, the ruler, the president, whoever is not there only because God has allowed him to be there. Everything that we see in the world is ruled by God. This is the entire universe is God's kingdom. He is the sole ruler, the sole authority. As we so often say, there's not one molecule out of place. God has it exactly where he wants it to be. And that should give us a sense of a peace and a little bit of a just release on trying to control this challenge of self idolatry, trying to control everything in our lives, because ultimately we can trust that everything is ruled by God. Now, if we don't know God, if we have questions about who God is, we might cause it might cause us to wonder, is God benevolent? Is he kind? I see all of these brokenness, all these challenges in the world. I don't know if I really like that reality. Well, whether we like the reality or not does not change the reality. Parents, we know this in dealing with our children. They very often aren't real pleased or excited about the reality of what we tell them. I don't really want to do that. I don't really like to do that. This is not something that I would choose for myself. I'm sorry. This is my home. And so this is how things are going to be. So God does not get removed from his throne of authority just because we're not really pleased or don't very often, most of the time, understand. But we can know. As Christians, we can know that the universal ruler, the kingdom that is ruled by God, he is good and benevolent, and he's proven that through Christ. And so when Jesus announces that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is declaring, first of all, that there is this universal kingdom, that all that we see in the world is owned and ruled by God, not by us. But as he calls the people to repent because the kingdom is at hand, he is saying, I am bringing what you've been waiting for and looking for. I am bringing this kingdom to bear on earth See, the kingdom of God, the universal kingdom. It sometimes feels like, and it, in, 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 in some ways it's, it's out there wherever the heavens, the universe, this broad, it encircles everything that we see and everything that we do. And so that is this universal kingdom. And Jesus, when he stepped on earth, he is saying, I am bringing this kingdom that is reality out there. I'm bringing it home to you. I'm bringing it into your awareness, to your presence. And the way to enter into that kingdom, the means to grant, be given access to this more narrow kingdom or this narrower view of the kingdom is through faith. Repent and believe, Mark would say. Repent and believe. Have faith to believe that this kingdom is here. So when we think of the kingdom of God and you ask yourself, what is the kingdom of God? There's essentially two answers. There's the universal, the big kingdom of God. Everything in the world, everything in the universe, in a sense, is ruled and owned by God. He owns it all. He is a king, authority over it all. And then there's the narrow kingdom of God, which is entered into, which is brought to bear by Christ and is entered into through faith. But so often, as I said, we miss this kingdom. We're unable to see all that God is doing or has done. And the biggest challenges of this new kingdom, or to believe that we're citizens of this new kingdom, is between living in the old life and being transferred to this new life. It's a wrestling match of living in the old kingdom. See, that old universal kingdom, even before we were faith, had faith in Christ, if you're a Christian today, before you had faith in Christ, you were a citizen of the kingdom of God. He owned it all. There was nothing that you could do outside of his ownership. You could not ever find yourself on a piece of land, in a, in a state of mind, in something that God did not have authority over. But as we're welcomed into this new kingdom, the kingdom of God here on earth, that Jesus brought we find ourselves wrestling back and forth, trying to keep a hold, a grip on both kingdoms. And this causes us many problems. And so we miss what God is doing here on earth as part of his earthly kingdom because we're so focused on so many of life's issues. As I said yesterday briefly sharing a bit about this message and this series, I would really suggest that all of the current life issues, the weight of those issues, the the burden that we feel because we're experiencing a global pandemic and political strife and racial issues and just on and on and on local challenges of of school and etc the reason that we do that is because we've forgotten that that those things carry so much weight and problem in our life is we've forgotten our citizenship in the new kingdom and we've we've again because of this challenge of self-idolatry, thinking of ourselves as most important and most valuable, whatever is right in front of us is all that we are willing to see. And we miss that we are citizens of this new kingdom and we have a new life. And so in reality, what we're, cha- what we're challenged by is that we overvalue this life. We overvalue the things that we can see and we undervalue God's ways. We undervalue the way that God moves and what he says and what he does and the way that he calls us to live because those things are really a found and we're led to those things by faith, by the unseen. What is easier to deal with? What is right in front of me? What I can physically see? Or to live and to deal with life in a way that is unseen. And to deal with the challenges in a way that is not visible to us. That requires great faith. And so we miss this kingdom because we're so focused again on this life. So, how do we find ourselves? How do we make our way towards focusing on the kingdom of God? The first thing that we do is that we realize that there is a time to the kingdom. You might ask the question, I put this, I think, in the the kids' notes. When is the kingdom of God? When does it arrive? When is it present? Well, of course, it first came to bear, Jesus says, at the very beginning of his ministry, that he came to bring the kingdom of God to bear here on earth as it is in heaven. It's always there, but I'm bringing it to bear. And yet... We know that there is this waiting. Why do we still deal with all of the strife? For the Jew of that day, why did he still have the Roman authority ruling over him? If Jesus had brought his kingdom to bear, how could he have brought his kingdom to bear and the Romans still have rule? We would ask ourselves the question, how if Jesus' kingdom is real and if we're citizens of this new kingdom, why do we still deal with all of the strife? Why doesn't King Jesus just strike it all down? Why doesn't he he erase all of this pain, eliminate all of the suffering? That's a valid question. I understand why we might ask that. The reason is, is because the kingdom of God is something when it is, is there is an already, it's arrived, and there is also a not yet. That we're waiting for the consummation of the kingdom. Jesus promised that he would go away. And he would go and make a place for us. And so that at the proper time, he would come back, he would collect us, and he would take us home. This is a, he used the illustration of the bridegroom as he taught this lesson to his disciples. So the kingdom of God is like the bridegroom. In that day, what would happen with the bride and the bridegroom is the groom would go to the father and ask the father for the daughter's hand in marriage. And he would say, yes, I'll allow you to marry my daughter. And at that moment, they were betrothed together. You might remember that word betrothed, not something we use very often in our context, but Joseph and Mary were betrothed. We use the word engaged in a sense, but when you were betrothed, as we learn from Joseph, when he was thinking about divorcing Mary, although they had not yet been married. Married, Betrothal in that day and time was is, is the same as marriage. You are married when you are betrothed. And so the groom would go to the father and say, I would like to have your daughter's hand in marriage. And they would be betrothed together. And then the groom would go away. And ultimately what he would be doing is he'd be going to prepare the home where he would ultimately take his new bride in some ways, he'd also be working to come up with a little bit of payment for dad to kind of take care of mom and dad in their retirement age. Again, the cultural norms of that day were that uh, were such that they would provide. And so the groom would go away and he would make this place and then he would come back. They were married. They were committed. They were covenanted together when the son asked or the the groom asked the father for the daughter's hand in marriage, but he would go away and nothing would change about their relationship in that time of departure. But there was definitely a time where he would come back. He would take his bride to himself and the marriage would be consummated and they would be married at that moment. Well, this is what Jesus has done. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus has come and he has announced that his kingdom is here. And he has gathered up and over many, many years has been gathering his flock. All, as he would say, all that the father would give to him. He has been gathering them up as his children, as his bridegroom. And Jesus has gone away and he's going to come back and he's going to collect us. And we are going to go to this place that he has promised to us, that he has been preparing for us into the kingdom finally and forever. And so we live in this tension of knowing that through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, we have been welcomed and we have been brought into his family. We have been betrothed, covenanted to Christ. He has made a covenant to us. But we are waiting. And as we wait, we deal with the challenges of the day. The pain and the suffering of our broken world and our flesh. But if we keep our eyes, as you can just imagine, I know ladies, this will be possibly a little bit easier for you, but all of us might struggle just because the culture has changed. But can you imagine the daughter waiting for her groom to return the excitement and the anticipation that she had for her groom to return so that she could go and begin her new life and live with her husband? This is the excitement, this is the anticipation as Christians that we all are called to have, that we keep our eyes on Jesus, and we keep our eyes on the reality that he has come for us, and he has purchased for us entrance into his kingdom. And as we keep our eyes on Jesus, yes, as we sang, the things of this world will become strangely dim. That is the call. When Jesus began his ministry, Calling us to repent and believe that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He's calling us to keep our eyes on him. As we close this morning, I want us to think one last thought about the kingdom. This amazing idea. Something that should cause all of our hearts to warm. I don't know however it is that you get warm and fuzzy. A cowboy's victory, or whatever it might be, that song that comes on the radio, that memory that you think of, whatever it is, when we think of the fact that we have been welcomed, invited into the kingdom of God, our hearts should be overwhelmed with joy, with worship, in awe, because we don't deserve to be citizens of that kingdom. This wrestling match that we deal with testifies to that point. Everything, our self-idolatry, the way that we focus on ourselves, the way that we're so quickly and easily tempted to just keep our eyes on this earthly kingdom and forget the kingdom of heaven and forget where we are ultimately going and who we're called to worship and live for, tells us every moment of my day, I'm like, Lord, I am not worthy of your kingdom. I am not worthy to be a citizen of heaven. But we have been invited into this kingdom. When Jesus began his ministry, he came to the people. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come, come to me, follow me. I know that the Roman oppression, I know all of the things that you're dealing with in this life are hard. He might say to us, I realize I am aware in some, I am over COVID, not over like we're over it, but he's over COVID. He's sovereign. He rules it. He's over all of the strife and all of the pain, all the division that we're experiencing as a nation, all of the pain that we experience personally at home, as we lose loved ones, as we grieve, as we strive, all of those things, Jesus is keenly aware of it all. He knows it, but he's welcomed us into his kingdom. And he has said, I come to you to bring you and to call you to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Believe that I am real. Believe who I am and just, I welcome you in. My friend, Meph, he owns one of my favorite restaurants that I eat way too much food at. He loves the United States of America. He's a foreigner. He's from Albania. And Meph moved here, began a life, began his business. And this country, in a sense, has provided a means for him to thrive And so even as I was just talking with him this week, I was just struck by this, the joy on his face, even in the midst as he's telling me about being frustrated because some tables are having to be closed. And he's frustrated because he doesn't really like wearing the mask because he likes to smile at his customers and he misses being able to see their faces and all of these stripes. He's still filled with joy because he's just aware that everything he has is just a blessing. And he was welcomed into a nation that just provided so many opportunities and so much joy for him that he believes he wouldn't have otherwise had. That is an earthly kingdom, even the great United States, that will be one day turned to dust in light of the kingdom of heaven. How much more should we be overjoyed that Jesus has welcomed us into his kingdom? If you're a Christian today, that should consume our minds. And so the answer to the challenge of dealing with this self-idolatry and being so consumed with self is to be constantly and keenly aware that we are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. He has welcomed us into it and we did nothing to deserve it and yet we get to receive and reap all of the benefits from it. And we should worship him. And if you are not today, if this morning you're asking or you're telling yourself and thinking as you process through perhaps my words. I don't understand what you mean by this kingdom of heaven. I don't believe that I am a citizen of that kingdom. I've never understood what that means. I want to just declare and tell you that this is Jesus's kingdom. He is also, it's his kingdom. He owns the kingdom, but he is also the means to the kingdom. He is the ruler of the kingdom. And we flourish under his lordship. And so I would just invite you with Jesus' words. You want to enter into the kingdom? You want to be a citizen of heaven? A citizen of the new kingdom? Repent. And believe what Jesus said is true. Believe it. And be welcomed in. There's no other precondition. There's no other thing that you need to do. There's no other religious exercise. It is simply confess, yes, God, Lord Jesus, I have been consumed with myself. I confess that to you, and I desire to be a citizen of your kingdom and believe. And we can talk more about what that belief means. I'd love to have that conversation with you offline. I pleaded with you last week. If you want to email me, you want to send a message through our Facebook page, or whatever means you have to get in contact, text that 9700 and just start an interaction with, with that text message thread. In some way, reach out. We'd love to talk with you more about what that means. There's There is more there, but it is something that we can take Jesus at his word and just say simply, repent and believe that his kingdom is at hand. Now, as we close, before I pray, I want to transition away and just and, uh, share something with you as a church family that we are going to be engaging in to sort of help us to begin to live in light of this kingdom. And to focus our minds around the idea of this kingdom. That is something that we're calling the shared practices. It should come up on the uh, slide right behind me here. If you're in the room, if you're online, you can see this. But our shared practices are over the next month, we are going to be walking through and collectively as a church, just trying to live our lives in submission to this new kingdom. And as we do things together as a church, we can encourage one another and we can sort of hold each other accountable. And we can just walk through these things together. And so this week we began our shared practices. And so you can go to citychurchmelissa.com slash shared practices and you can see each week and what we're going to do. There's engagement. I think we have the first week's instructions here. So week one, this week, what we're saying, if you can't read the screen, I get it. It's far away and there's a little bit of a glare, but I'll read it for you. Week one is scripture before screens. So our shared practice this week is is that before we open a computer or a screen or anything else, and this might be a little bit hard for those of us that have our Bibles on a screen, because we're going to just say, we're going to put the Bible app away for a moment. Get our real physical Bibles out. Dust them off. There went my water. Dust off those Bibles. Put them beside your bedstand, And before we open up a screen, we're going to open up God's Word. And I would just invite you, perhaps you're wondering, well, where should I open it up to? Just go to Matthew 5. And just read the Sermon on the Mount. Every day this week. Matthew 5 through 7. It will take you, I believe, about 3 minutes and 37 seconds. That's how long to read the entire sermon. Now you're wondering, how is he going to make an entire semester out of this? Well, just wait. But 3 minutes and 37 seconds. Read Matthew 5 through 7 every day this week. And just imagine, collectively, as a whole church. If we... Every day this week. Kids as well. Listen. Kids, get your Bible. Have mom and dad help you. Get a Bible out. Maybe you just read one or two verses from your stories from your Jesus storybook Bible or whatever it might mean. But before we look at a TV, we pull out our phones or we do any of those sorts of things, We're asking and inviting you to say we're going to be practicing being citizens of a new kingdom. We're going to live our lives differently. We're going to do that together. So you'll be able to find this every week on our website. You'll just be able to see. You can even see the outline of that right now. But uh, we pray that that would bless you and, and that we would just be encouraged together as we live this out. Striving to follow Jesus and the instructions that he's given us. So let me pray and then we will dismiss. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the joy, again, of being able to worship and to gather together. I thank you for these dear ones that you've brought um, together with us this morning. Those that are gathered with us online, I pray that you would bless them. Lord, we do pray two things. We pray for those of us that have put our hope in you, who at one point in our life in the past have repented and believed that you are King of all, Lord of all. Would you help us? We, did, we need to repent again. I need to repent of so often not living as if you are Lord of my life, but striving to live under my own strength, living for my own desires, living under my own power, living for myself, keeping I, my, me at the the forefront of my mind. So I pray that you'd help me to just lay that down, Lord. I I confess that too often I do that rather than keeping my eyes and my mind on you. So would you help us um, to live for you, Lord, and to live with you as Lord of our lives. And Lord, for those that might not know what it means, not don't understand, have not ever believed that you are Lord I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to their souls, that you would, you would just tell them, convince them of your great love. Lord, you are abundantly gracious and merciful. And so even as you began your ministry, all you did, you simply said, repent. Just confess your sins and believe in me. So I pray by the power of your spirit that anyone who has not done that would be able to in this moment to just confess, repent of their sins, turn to you and believe in your finished work on the cross on their behalf. I Pray you give them the boldness to reach out and just ask for help or guidance or for a friend to come alongside and walk with them. And I pray that we would be the church and be a faith family that would just be eager. And find opportunities to do that. Help us in all these things, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your mighty and precious name. Amen. It's been great to worship with you this morning. Thank you so much for being with us. It's, uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, if you're here in the room, I would love an opportunity to do that. And so if you'd just give me a few moments uh, to come and say hello and give you a fist tap or um, say uh, good morning to you, I'd love an opportunity to do that. Again, visitors online, if you're gathering with us and we haven't had a chance to engage with you, please uh, text that, message, that, that number that Kyle gave, 97000. Text the word visit CCM, and uh, we'd love an opportunity to connect with you. Until then, Get in the Word this week, every day, before you see a screen. And uh, we will see you back for worship next week. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane. And we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa. For the glory of God and the good of the city.